1: Hey, everybody, and welcome to RealPod. I'm Victoria Garrick, former DON athlete and mental health and body image advocate. Every Wednesday, I'll be bringing you awesome guests, weekly inspiration, and the realest conversations around everything and anything. Now let's get real. Welcome back to Real Pot, everybody. Hope you're having a fantabulous morning. I couldn't decide between fantastic and fabulous, so we will go with fantabulous. As you all probably know, this past Sunday was World Mental Health Day. Honestly, every day should be Mental Health Day, and honestly, it can be, you know, if we're prioritizing our own mental health, but it's still great to have one day where everyone is talking about and raising awareness for something that all of us deal with that. Said, I wanted this week's episode to be in support of that. And we have an incredible guest today in Dr. Margaret Rutherford, who is a psychologist and has been in private practice for over 25 years. She is the author of Perfectly Hidden Depression How to Break Free from the Perfectionism That Masks Your Depression and the host of the Self Work Podcast. I think one of the biggest things we talk about these days with mental health is that you cannot always see it, right? And sometimes people do a great job of hiding it. And so Dr. Rutherford is going to talk about the phenomenon that is hidden depression, the kind of depression that affects the people that you would least expect. This episode definitely is going to go deep, if talk of depression, suicidal ideation, or any of that is triggering or uncomfortable for you, this is definitely your warning. But I do believe that this conversation is one that we can all benefit from by getting really a deeper understanding of this silent disease. Before we get started, quick shout out to CalGirl2215, who said, this podcast is so freeing. She left a rating and a review. I've listened to this podcast for a good while now and I cannot recommend Real pod enough to everyone. Vic is so honest and real about her topics and her guests. I love every episode and I'm so glad to be a part of the real pod squad. Calgirl two, two, one, five. thank you so much for leaving this review. I love that word freeing that you feel like these conversations are freeing. That is certainly my goal here and I am the one who is lucky and happy to have a you be a part of this community. If you've been enjoying RealPod and you want to leave a rating and review, you can head over to iTunes. It takes just a few seconds and it really supports the show. And I love, love hearing from you. Without further ado, we will be diving right into this episode on mental health with Dr. Rutherford. Dr. Margaret, I'm so excited to have you here. This is a topic that is deeply saddening, but also fascinating at the same time. And I've been wanting to host some episodes recently where I bring on an expert to add color and explanation to a phenomenon or a mental health experience or an emotion that people go through. And you know, your book and what you speak about regarding perfectly hidden depression is something that I think everyone needs to hear because it's harder to see the signs. And I also feel like, unfortunately, we hear stories all the time of we had no idea, you know, like no one saw this coming or this person had everything. They were the most popular. You know, I always wished I could be her or him or whoever. So I guess, you know, first of all, thanks for coming. And then in terms of where to start, when did this idea of of perfectly hidden depression come to you? Well, when it came
0: to me was actually when I was sitting down to write a, my regular blog post and I started thinking about the different people that I had seen through the years that had this common thread of them not being able to express painful emotion, if I asked them about early sexual abuse or early childhood issues, they'd say something like, Oh yeah, you know, my dad was an alcoholic. There was more beer in the kitchen than food. Ha 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 ha. You know, and and so they could describe something to you that was difficult, but they had oh, they had this armor on around it. And it was a very impenetrable armor. And they would even look at me and I'd say, gosh, that was difficult. Oh, no, everybody everybody has their stuff. And Or they'd say, you know, if I started crying, I'd never stop. Or they had this very detached way of talking about it. And I just started thinking about, okay, what what was actually part of, of their work? And to a T, all these people eventually were able to dig down deep enough to where they said, the, at my core, I have this shame, I have this sense of something being awfully wrong. I have this sense of i can i can't ever talk about this because it would destroy me um, and as I began to uh, write then about this post, I just picked the term "perfectly hidden depression" out of the air and called it the perfectly hidden depressed person or you one.
1: Wow, and with all of those people who wrote you saying, I resonate or I relate to this, this is me, what exactly were they relating to? Like, how would you describe the perfectly hidden depressed person?
0: Well, I actually came up with a list of traits, and a lot of those traits were based on what people told me. In fact, I even dug deeper with some people who volunteered to do interviews with me, some of whom had never talked about this perfectly hidden depression idea. I conducted over 60 interviews with people like an hour and a half, two hours long, where they just told me everything that had happened in their life. And I was asking questions. And sometimes they would say, well, that wasn't a big deal. Well, I know it wasn't a big deal, but just tell me anyway. <laughs> and so they would begin to piece together these these traits of how they had begun to protect themselves. You know, what? what I think, Victoria, is that The the term I used in the book was a childhood strategy. I've actually changed that term now. I think this kind of dynamic is childhood adaptation to many different emotionally difficult or troubled or chaotic uh, cultural or home environments. And there are lots of ways to get to where you're covering those things up, or there are lots of things you need to cover up. There could be sexual abuse, there could be neglect, there could be just growing up in a family where no one talked about vulnerability, you were sort of scorned or demeaned if you did, if you said you were angry or sad, well, go to your room until you can come out and smile. You know, how many of us grew up Mm -hmm. in families like that? Maybe you were the child who was highly accomplished and you felt like one of your parents really needed you to be that accomplished. Maybe you, were, you grew up as a minority and, by damn, if you weren't the very best or better than the best, you would be looked over. Maybe you grew up in a culture where your gender or your identity had somehow was based on being very stoic. I mean, there can be, as we say in Arkansas, there are a lot of ways around the barn,
1: mm-hmm. but
0: um, so there are a lot of ways to get there, but I came up with these traits. Uh, and the reason why I did it like that was I wanted to people to be able to read those posts and say, oh, you mean the fact that I get a lot of stuff done and I, meet, I always exceed other people's expectations, but I never give myself credit for that because I'm always beating myself up. The fact that I'm overly responsible, that I like a lot of control, that if I'm going to be involved, I'm going to be in charge. Uh, I worry a lot, but I never let anybody I know I worry a lot. Uh, that I'm a really good friend to other people, but no one really knows me very well. That I don't show my emotions. I love to stay in my head that um, if someone looks at me and says, well, gosh, you, that sounds rough, you go, oh, no, everybody has their stuff. And, you know, you discount anything like that. That you, uh, I love Susan David's work, who've, who I've also discovered since I wrote the book. She talks about emotional agility. And what she's talking about is something I was trying to describe when I said, you always count your blessings as sort of the, as your core belief system she calls that emotional agility, meaning that you can feel all different sorts of emotions rather than an emotional rigidity where you only let yourself, uh, what she calls a tyranny of positivity. You have this, the only thing you can allow your is are positive thoughts.
1: You know, what's fascinating is this idea that someone could be depressed and not even know it themselves. That's right. And I know that you've had your own experiences with mental health and and as have I, and I immediately noticed a change in, well, okay, that's a bit of an exaggeration. It wasn't immediate, but by the time I had, like when it's gradual, you don't notice it. But when I hit the trenches, as I like to call it, I knew I was somewhere I'd never been before. I didn't like it. I didn't know her and something was wrong. And it sounds like for most of these people, because it, develops when their children, they don't even realize that for years they've been unhappy. Is that true? That's exactly
0: right, Victoria. In fact, you know, some people might hear perfectly hidden depression and they they are actually are being treated for depression. They're in therapy or they're exercising or they're on meds but their label or rubric would be called smiling depression or high-functioning depression, where they know they're depressed. I mean, you had classic depression, meaning there was a huge change in your functioning. You know, you were no longer the person you knew yourself to be. High-functioning depression is somewhat similar in that you are able to get along, get to work, take care of your kids. You're not severely, so severely depressed that you can't function but you're also very bravely putting on a front. You're exactly accurate. And the, the, the group that I'm most concerned about trying to reach are these people who have such developmental trauma is what Bessel van der Kolk calls it, that they, they have covered up and, and, and grown this armor and grown this way of being that is in their eyes just the way they are. And they sometimes get this sense in their gut that there's something that they don't understand, but they are on this just sort of automatic. It's one of the famous researchers, Gordon Flett, talks about perfectionism and especially the the most dangerous kind of perfectionism as as being on a treadmill that you have no power over the incline or the speed. And he'll say that the, what they feel is the better you do, the more you're expected to do, the better you must do. And those expectations keep coming at you and coming at you and coming at you. and you have no, And you have to meet or exceed all of them.
1: The word perfectionist, I'm glad you just brought that up because that is something I want to dive into with you. And it's one of those Weird things that society views as like a flex. You know, I'm a perfectionist, is like the best thing you could put on your resume application. It's something people are proud to say. There's two main things in my mind that contribute negatively to poor mental health or like a toxic environment. And if we look at an example you mentioned, which was, you know, parents or the household you're raised in is we don't cry in this household. We don't complain. You know, we're tough. We got thick skin. So there's the people you grow up with. And then there's this societal messaging of you're weak if you're a man who cries and, you know, you should be an overachiever and a perfectionist and we're going to celebrate you. And it's we look at sports culture. It's great if you work yourself to a breaking point. And it's. It's just, uh, I mean, it's scary to think about the 360 of messaging coming at humans and young adults that's encouraging them to ignore their emotions.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. That's right. And I think that the first healing uh, stage of uh, of the whole book and the whole idea is that you have to become conscious that this is a problem. You know, and that is actually very hard. I mean, you and I—we've um, had an eating disorder in the past, and and so a lot of times, especially anorexia, is the same way. The anorexia has been the best friend. I mean, I know how I feel. I know what if I don't eat for two days, what I'm going to feel like. It helps me feel in control. Well, perfectionism is just like that. It's your best friend. I know if I turn that on. If I keep the thumb in my back, you know, if I keep forcing myself forward, that I will do really well and I will get rewarded for it, especially professionally. You know, I was joking with the man, the doctor who I had cataract surgery with last fall, and he said, "Well, I'm sort of a perfectionist." I said, "Good, you know, (laughs) unless you also go home and you know think about hurting yourself." So, but as people have come out of the woodwork to to share their stories with me it's it's so painful to hear them say things like and so sad if people knew what i really struggled with i would lose everything i would lose my job i'd lose my friends i'd lose my family support i'd lose and i i just can't do it and yet when they get into treatment with someone who can understand the power of this prison that they're in that it it is actually something that they can finally be free i i was able to work with two or two or three incredible people while i was writing the book and i actually used a lot of the things they were saying to me because they helped me process my own thinking as i was trying to formulate my own ideas about this and I remember one woman who said she was when she walked in my door, she was engaged to the perfect-looking person. She had the perfect-looking life. She'd gotten the perfect job after college. Uh, she had a childhood incident of severe abuse by her father, which had actually she'd actually had to have multiple surgeries on her face to fix the consequences of that. Her mother had an eating disorder. She had an eating disorder, and she came in, and she just looked at me, and she said, I'd heard something about perfectly hidden depression, but I want to tell you, I will not talk about anything for at least a few sessions until I trust you. And I said, okay, you're in charge. I'm not. <laughs> That's fine. And she just began very slowly opening up, and it turns out the perfect fiance. Was sexually abusing her and emotionally abusing her. Her anorexia had gotten to the point where I mean it was dangerous. It was I almost had to put her in residential. Although she she said when she started eating, she started she would just cry when she ate. And she also she told me about three months before she left. She said when I walked in your door, trigger warning to anybody's listening. I had a plan to kill myself three weeks after I married the perfect fiance. She was so full of anger, so full of sadness, that she had never really been able to connect with. She didn't know how. And it took painstaking work on her part, but she finally began to, what another patient referred to as, I finally broke my silence. I broke my silence. These things that I've been carrying around with me secretly for years, that I didn't even, I just thought they were so powerful, they would destroy me.
1: It's ironic how when people fear losing the perfection, the relationships, the job, the things around them, that they sacrifice themselves essentially in the process. They lose themselves in the process. And that's one of the hardest things about mental health in general is in order to change the trajectory of your life, you have to put yourself first. And that's very, right. very hard for people to do. Now, look, I'm not a perfectionist. So I have two questions for you, Dr. Margaret. You got you. I would love for you to kind of explain what being a true perfectionist entails, how that lifestyle you know, plays out. And then my follow-up is the word perfectionist, would you agree that it's been desensitized and overused by people who are not perfectionists? The oh, same yeah. way people say, oh, I have OCD. And it's like, no, you don't have OCD. And OCD is also not being super clean. So you don't even understand what it means. But I feel bipolar like
0: bipolar is another one of them. I'm so bipolar.
1: I know just not correctly used at all. So I guess, yeah, that's a double header for you is what does a perfectionist look like? And how has the desensitization to the word affected the true perfectionists?
0: Both really good questions. And let me be quick to say, uh, although there is there is some uh, debate about this, there are some researchers who say that perfectionism in and of itself is bad news. It's just never going to be conducive to good mental health. But there are other people who say, and I tend to agree with them, that I think that as long, there's a something called constructive perfectionism or adaptive perfectionism that really is not, it's, what it's fueled by is curiosity and creativity, generosity. It's very process-oriented, meaning, yes, I'm really going to try hard to do something as well as I can, but I'm also going to be able to feel, okay, if if it if it fails or if, the perfectionism is in the process it's not in the accomplishment itself so i think that if you can if you can see yourself in in that in fact there's also another uh, terminology it's called perfectionistic it's hard to say that word over and over again perfectionistic strivings is this kind of sense of i really it means a lot to me to do something very well whereas what's called perfectionistic concerns meaning I can't make a mistake. And I can't see, I can't allow anyone to see that part of me that is either afraid of making a mistake or has made a mistake. And so that is much more fueled. The, con, the destructive perfectionism is much more fueled by this shame and fear and. I better not let anybody see that I can make a mistake or, you know, I, or why, why wouldn't I be the perfect person for this job? I've always got to look like I'm the perfect person for this job. And so there's an immense kind of pressure behind it and, and you're it's not process oriented at all. And so it loses that sense of any kind of joy or fulfillment and actually I think the worst kind is something called this socially prescribed perfectionism, which again is that sort of having to meet others' expectations all the time. Your job is never ending. And, and you know, one of the, well, I, I immediately uh, burst into tears when I heard this the first time. But um, a woman you know, who's a friend of mine, um, contacted me back almost a year ago and said, that her friend had uh, killed herself and that um, she had gone to the funeral. And this friend was one of those, why did she do it? She had everything. And her husband had found my book on her nightstand. So she was looking for answers. She was beginning to say something's not right. And um, it's just, we've got to reach those people. and. Furthermore, and then I'll get to your desensitization question. Furthermore, I think we've got to make sure that the mental health community knows and recognizes that we are making errors. We are making diagnostic errors. When we settle or when we don't ask further questions about this happy-looking, you know, non-depressed-looking person that's coming in and... You know, it's kind of that, the, the, the example I like to give is when cardiologists, their only um, diagnostic criteria for uh, a potential heart attack was based on men, research with men. So women were coming in and going, oh, I have this symptom that was different. And they go, oh, no, that's not a heart attack symptom. Well, when they started doing research on women, we have, can have different symptomatology. That is a predictor of heart attack. So cardiologists began to change the way they looked at women coming in. The mental health profession needs to look differently at perfect looking people. We can't ask the same questions. We must ask, well, not just do you ever feel hopeless, but we must ask the question, if you felt hopeless, would you even let anybody know? Right. Right.
1: Or why do you feel hopeless? this need? Or, or, or something like, you know, it seems like you have everything put together. Is that a priority for you? You know, taking that right. different route.
0: Right. And, you know, how easily do you talk about things that maybe you're disappointed in? Or, oh, no, I, you know, I just, I'm I just, I hate complainers. I hate people who, you know, there are lots of ways to get at the subject matter. Now, as far as your um, the desensitization of the word perfectionism, yes, I I I think there are lots of ways people talk about mental health issues and codependence is a huge one. I mean, they, they just everybody you know narcissism is in some ways. I mean, I wrote a post one time called "Not Every Narcissist, Not Every Jerk Is a Narcissist," because you know we're just kind of throwing around those terms, but you're right. A true destructive perfectionist is someone who is just riddled with uh, self loathing and criticism, but looks like they are just got the world by the tail.
1: I can't help but sit here and think about the people who love these people and don't see the signs because they don't let them in. And, you know, my gut is to ask the question why don't they want to let anyone in, you know, not even some situations it's, it's the husband or the wife of 15, 20 years. And they're standing at the funeral or they're giving the Ted talk, you know, in preparation for this, I watched a Ted talk about someone whose husband had perfectly hidden depression and, and took his life. And she says, you know, I know people look at me and they're like, how could you not know? And he never said anything. He downplayed everything. So what? What about opening up about how you really feel? Is not, why is that not an option? Why is sure. taking sure. my life the option before giving this conversation a chance?
0: Well, I, I think that there's there's several ways to look at that answer. One is the fact that it's possible that when they got together. That the partner also struggled to avoid conflict, or, you, know, they, they had similar struggles, and so they, they kind of, there was a perfect storm of, OK, we'll avoid conflict, we'll look great in the community, we'll look great, great externally, but there's not a whole lot of emotional intimacy going on. So that's a possibility. There's also a possibility, because these people are huge overfunctioners, And overfunctioners tend to attract underfunctioners. And so there might be a huge investment in this person being, you know, heavily responsible for things in the in the relationship. There also sometimes people like this will attract people with narcissism because they want they want the narcissist, um, a true narcissist, will want someone who will take the responsibility and who will blame themselves easily for problems secretly in the relationship. And so they look great on the outside, but there's not a whole lot of true connection going on, uh, and that's sort of a trauma bond. But I also think that there are people who are partnered with people who have uh, who would identify with perfectly hidden depression, and I think they are. You know, I've had people reach out to me and say, suddenly I realized when I looked at your book, you know, or I heard this phrase that when my wife's best friend moved away, you know, moved to Costa Rica. I never saw her cry or you know or when my my husband's brother died he, he just didn't even seem to want to process that. Or I've had people reach out to me and go, you know, I've been married two or three times and I never let the person I was married to into who I was. And so It's amazing how many people are living in relationships where there's actually very little emotional intimacy.
1: That is fascinating, honestly. And fortunately, my relationships are not that way. We talk about our problems and everything's out on the table. And so that's, I think, why I'm like, you know, how could you not just say something? And, you know, I remember when I didn't understand what was going on with me and I was afraid that I would you know, be looked down upon by my teammates or by my coach. But I think I always felt like I could open up to a very close best friend or family member. And that's not a luxury that a lot of people have. You could be raised in households with parents who don't ask you how you are and never feeling like you have a true best friend who you don't have to act cool around. So what do you recommend for those people who are seeking that deep connection with another human.
0: Well, I I think you have, you know, or it's a good thing to remember that they don't really, they don't know, they've never experienced that connection. So that to them, it's it's like if you'd never tasted chocolate, you'd be fine with vanilla, you know. Um, and then all of it, you know, you just don't yearn for what you've never had. Again, this childhood adaptation of uh you know, when a child doesn't experience safety and security in their parental home, they decide that it's not important to them, that they can be fine without it. So sometimes it's in therapy that someone will finally learn, well, gosh, you know, it is kind of nice to open up. But I think that, I, and I've said this to everyone I work with, to say, I want you to try to find one person that your gut tells you could handle a conversation about, even if you start with, sometimes I, 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 I want you to think that I'm stronger than I really am. You're really not revealing all that much, but you're taking a baby step toward, toward uh, being a little more vulnerable. And if your friend says, well, you know, I've kind of wondered about that. You say, well, I can't talk about it. I've, I've, t- I've taken my baby step and <laughs> that's, that's it, it for today. That's it for I'm today. <laughs> and But you know, it's amazing how many people will say, oh yeah, I, and who identify with this, who'll say, oh, I, I have a friend I tell everything to. I said, great, where does she live? Oh, well, she lives in Canada. Or <laughs> I had seen her in 10 years, but we talk all the time. It's as if the distance helps them feel a little bit safe to or to maybe let them know a little bit more of what's going on, but anybody close in their environment that they might run into at school or they might run into at a meeting, no, they don't want anybody to know about that. And so it's truly a a transparency that they're very uncomfortable with. But uh, you know, this one woman that I worked with as I was re- as I was writing the book also said, you know, when I finally began making the connections between a lot of what was going on between me and my husband and what had gone on in earlier relationships. And I started letting him know that I was beginning to see this. He looked at me with tears in his eyes and said, I've been so wanting this to with you. I've been so ready for you to really enter this relationship with me and trust me. I've just been, I, I, I didn't know what I was doing wrong. I was blaming myself
1: vulnerability obviously seems like an antidote to a lot of this issue is getting that courage to open up and talk about what's really going on and and share the experiences and the problems. And that is kind of the way that I currently live my life. I don't really know another, I almost, I'm like too vulnerable. I joke that I go to the grocery store and they're like, Hey, how are you? How are you? How are you doing today? And they're just expecting a good thing. And so i I'm like, oh, I'm not good. You know, this happened. And the guy's like, dude, here's your receipt. Goodbye. You know, I don't even, I don't know when to shut it off. I answer every question with like, no, no filter on it.
0: Complete candor.
1: Right. Right. In general though, vulnerability, how important is that? And how can people become more vulnerable when it seems foreign?
0: Well, I actually would add something to what you're saying. I I think the antidote and vulnerability is a huge part of this, but the, the antidote to something like perfectly hidden oppression is what I, you know, is self acceptance. And what I say by that, what I mean by that, my definition of it is that realizing and understanding and absorbing that your strengths do not define you any more than your vulnerabilities do, and vice versa. That means, and I've used this, uh, this uh, example frequently because I think it's dramatic. I have three letters after my name that I'm very proud of. PhD, i worked really hard for those. I've also been married three times. Not so proud of that. The last one has been over 30 years. So, you know, I got something right, right? Third time's
1: a charm. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> but the first two were chaotic and hurtful and I got hurt, they got hurt messy, immature, all that kind of stuff. Well, those are two facts about me, right? And what I have learned over time and with a lot of therapy is that neither one of those facts defines me fully. The one I'm proud about and the one I'm not so proud about. And so I think when you can get to that place of recognizing that, you know, other people may judge you for that, but you're not in control of that, but your own sense of, you know, I've done things that I, that I have brought me fulfillment and I have been done, experienced, said, felt things that I, that have been troublesome and and problematic and hurtful, shameful is still a fact about me. And I can accept that. So I, th- I think the antidote is it involves vulnerability, but it really involves true self-acceptance.
1: This reminds me, well, first of all, I love that. That is an amazing point, And I hope that people are taking that to heart. But this is reminding me of, are you familiar with the work of Eckhart Tolle?
0: Oh yeah, sure. Mm-hmm.
1: He's great. And mm-hmm. one of
0: A little over my head sometimes, but he's
1: great. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I know. I have to like reread every line five times. Yeah, me too. But something he said that sparked his journey was he was on the brink of suicide and kept having this thought, I can't live with myself anymore. I can't live with myself anymore. And then eventually took a step back and said, huh, there's two of me in that sentence. There's the Mm. I who can't live with the me. So which one am I really? Wow. Yeah. And that's when he started to understand we're the awareness, you know, we're the being, we're the presence and the thinking and the conditioned thoughts and the stories we tell ourselves are a result of what we've learned our whole life. And I think you kind of just shed light on that is Dr. Margaret could never be described by just a credential or by, three marriages you know you're so much more than that that the english language can't even describe you know the essence of your being yeah. and it's,
0: it's 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 not either or right it's an and i i am that and i'm that and you know and and he was the person who wanted to end his life and he was a person who was questioning that and not wanting to end his life so yeah i i love that i've never seen that um I have not studied his work extensively, however, so I'm going to. Well, see I, I would I almost
1: say, too, like you you can also just end it with I am. And I think, you yeah. know, to get biblical, I, but um, he references a lot of different, you know, Buddhism and Christianity. But just that that I am and, mm-hmm. you know, I I will be what will come because our society has this need to kind of. Define everything. And especially when you're growing up, it's, you know, I'm the volleyball player and my younger brother's the smart one and my older brother's the golfer and my mom is the this and my dad is the this. And we all have our definitions and, you know, we want to be things in life. And without that, we feel like we'll be nothing, but really, you know, that's, that's who we are. We're, we're, we're going over, I'm going over my own head now.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I use a, a metaphor and analogy. I never can quite remember the difference between those of with my own patients about how we have a, it, it's like if you, if you walk on a, a rock path and we're used to seeing the rock, that we walk on every day. It's a part of our stability. It's a part of what leads us places. And we think, okay, that's the part of me that I can see. And I, I walk there, I travel there. That's me. That's me. That's me. But what if you turn that rock over and there's moss and there's worms and there's all kinds of stuff? Well, that's the rock too you know all that's all the rock the part that you can see and you you maybe even appreciate and you're glad is there but then there's a whole other side of that of your being that is also just as much a part of you as i am i love that and so and and it's a whole it's it's very much a whole so i think it's so important to know that and to accept that with compassion that those things are all approachable and all expressible and and literally may save your life if you do so.
1: Wow. I have one more question I want to ask When it comes to depression, it's hard to define, and oftentimes, if someone interviews me and, and get takes me to a place where they're like, "You know what did those days feel like?" I would rather cry and, and just kind of think than find words to explain because it's so hard to explain the state of depression. You know, from your point of view as a professional, what does it mean for someone to be depressed? Because there are still people out there who just think, are you sad? Can you sleep it off? You know, they don't really understand what that fog feels like for people who are depressed.
0: Yes. And, and we've got to remember, it's both physical, it's mental, and it's emotional, all three realms. The best word I've ever had that's come to me, Victoria, is this sense of classic depression is an implosion of the self. It's literally all your energy going and just getting sucked in to your emotional energy, your, your mental energy, your physical energy. And it's just it's, it's like there's this magnet in your, in your being that is pulling all of your energy inward. And the work, for again, for classic depression is to help people begin to externalize and get that energy to stop it from imploding and beginning to help it get back into growing into their relationships and their lives. The work of perfectly hidden depression is opposite that because people who are hiding this kind of perfectionism and shame and fear, they don't know how to go inward. <laughs> they have to learn that it's safe to go inward and that they're not going to disintegrate if they go inward. And, and it's literally one little step at a time to help them because they, they're all out here. They're all you know, attending to what's external and what's doable as one woman said i'm a duma not a human um, oh, you know wow. and, and it's all yeah that's descriptive. it's all ab- yeah it's all about what's out here and what what's out here to find you and there's this whole other part that's inward and is squishy and painful and messy and sometimes chaotic and a little scary and but um, i you could tell and i so you have asked wonderful questions, very thoughtful questions. And I so appreciate that because the suicide rate for every generation except 65 plus is going up and rates of perfectionism as well as suicide are going up and they correlate. And so we've got to do something about this and we've got to pay attention and recognize it as a problem. And I'm so appreciative of of your help with that.
1: I'm appreciative of your help. I mean, it's wild to think that one blog post that struck a chord with you turned into this empire that you've created that has helped so many have an epiphany about their life and and who they are. So thank you so much. And you're amazing. This was such an important conversation. I feel like I learned so much. And I hope that there are people listening who maybe feel seen, understood, and want to take that next step in, you know, diving more into the work that you do and hopefully reading the book and listening to your show. So thank you so much for taking the time. I know that you are a busy woman. I know that people pay a lot to talk to you for an hour. So thank you (laughs) um, for giving us an hour.
0: Sure. Of course, Victoria. And 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 just again, I'm very honored and thank you.
1: Thank you. upcoming guests by following the at RealPod account on Instagram. All information about today's show and guests will be linked in the description of this episode. Thanks again for listening. I love you guys so, so much. Let's go dominate the day. And as always, keep it real.